Let's get into Revelation. Let's look at chapter 13 this morning. Just want to read the first verse. I want to introduce to you a character that we've seen before, and we'll look at him a little more in detail. Revelation 13, verse 1. It is written, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So we have a beast coming up out of the sea. He's described as having seven heads and ten horns. What have we also seen here in Revelation that has seven heads and ten horns? The dragon. Who is the dragon? It tells us very clearly in chapter 12 who he is. Satan, the old serpent. So obviously this beast is related to the dragon we've just been introduced to. Obviously this beast is an incarnation of Satan himself or related to him. We're going to see uh, the relationship a little more in detail as we get into the chapter. This beast that rises out of the sea is Antichrist. No question. No question whatsoever. It's Antichrist. And we're going to talk about him a little bit today. But let's look at our outline. Uh, we are narratively speaking or chronologically speaking, we're at a point beyond the midpoint of the tribulation. Daniel's 70th week. That seven year period in which God pours out His wrath upon the earth, allows evil to have full reign through Antichrist and the dragon for two purposes. Number one, to wake up the people of Israel so they will acknowledge their transgression. What's the great transgression of the nation of Israel? They rejected Messiah. The tribulation serves to wake them up so they will realize their offense, acknowledge it, and then call for Him. And until they do so, it says in Hosea that He won't return. God says, I will come and then I will return and go to my place until they acknowledge their transgression. Then they will call for Me. To wake up Israel and then secondly, the purpose is for God to pour out His wrath upon the wicked Gentiles and the heathen. A world that has rejected Him, that has turned its back on Him despite His revelation through creation, the curse of sin, our conscience through the Word of God, through the testimony of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So we're, about mid, we're, we're past the midway point. What happens in the middle of that seven-year period that distinguishes the two halves? What's the that breaks right in half, divides it right down the middle? No, the peace treaty doesn't divide it. Antichrist breaks his word. He betrays the nation of Israel. It says in the book of Daniel, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he will make the abomination that maketh desolate. So the tribulation is divided into two periods. The first period where Antichrist is more of an imitator and the second half where he's an opposer. When he desecrates the temple and takes off his mask and betrays the people of Israel, we get into what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. 
Most of Jesus' focus in the Olivet Discourse is the Great Tribulation, that last three and a half year period where the judgment intensifies, where the wrath intensifies, where Antichrist has moved from being pseudo-Christ to Antichrist. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So we're in that Great Tribulation period now at this point in Revelation. We've already gone and we're up to the seventh trumpet. We know that that seven-sealed book there in Revelation 5 is the title deed of the earth. Adam was given the title deed of the earth and he sold his birthright. And since that point, Satan has been the god of this world or the uh, prince of the power of the air. Now, it's not some kind of cosmic dualism where it's God versus Satan. You know, God is up here. He governs. Satan is just the rod of his anger in some senses. But Messiah was the kinsman redeemer and he purchased back at the cross what is His, the second Adam, the earth. And when Christ returns, He comes to claim it. Okay, doesn't mean He's not ruling and reigning now. He's ruling and reigning in the hearts of His people, but He's not sitting on a literal throne in Jerusalem that the Bible says He will do. Okay, He has not put all His enemies at His feet. Literally. The enemy that becomes His footstool primarily is Israel. And until they recognize who He is, they're not His footstool. Or at His footstool. So Messiah comes back. That seven-sealed scroll is the title deed of the earth. He comes to claim what is His. What was purchased at the cross. And as He begins to open that scroll, the judgments fall. The very first seal that's removed is the one we're going to read about today. The white horse rider. He comes bringing peace. He's an imitator. Not the white horse Messiah of Revelation 19, but the white horse imitator. He's the first judgment out upon this world in that period. He comes riding a horse that's sent out from God. So he's the instrument of God's judgment. And yet the recipient of his wrath and destruction. Okay, just like Judas, it said that the things he did, Jesus said, must be done, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But it's better for him that he'd never been born. Woe unto him. It had to be done. He was used by God. But woe unto him. It's better that he never been born. A lot of similarities between Judas Iscariot and the beast that comes out of the sea. Okay, so we're moving along. We're the, the seventh seal, the seven seal judgments we've read about. The seventh seal, when the title deed is open, is the seven trumpet judgments. That's what the judgment of the seventh seal is. It's the seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet, that judgment is the seven vile judgments of God's wrath. So the trumpets and the vials all fall under that seventh seal. And we see the wrath of the devil and of evil men quickly becoming the wrath of God Himself as the judgments amp up and crescendo until the point at which Messiah returns. When we got into chapter 11, we saw a little bit of a parenthesis where there's a pause in the narrative. And then God's a glimpse of things going on in the background. We read about the ministry of the two witnesses. We see there was a temple in Jerusalem. We see Antichrist's role in uh, 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 murdering these two street preachers that God uses to, to bear testimony in those times of darkness. We see their rapture and return. And then we get into, we know that the end of the sixth 
seal coincides with the resurrection of those two witnesses. That's where the sixth seal ends. There's a great earthquake. And then we're going to see that the seventh seal is the seven vials of God's wrath. That's going to come later. But now we're into another parenthesis where we take a step back from the specific chronology and we see what's going on in the big picture. And this parenthesis starts with the first verse of chapter 12 and it goes to the end of chapter 14. That's where we're at now. I'm just speaking these things for review for some folks that are visiting, some that haven't been here in a while. And we all haven't been studying this book for a while. So I hope this is helping you. And so basically chapters 12 through 14 are a parenthesis that steps back and focuses upon the war between the two wonders that God's, John sees in heaven. The woman, who we know is the nation of Israel, and the dragon, which is Satan. And so that's the whole point of this, these two chapters is to emphasize the ongoing war between Satan, the serpent, and the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Israel. Satan hates Israel. He always has. He hates the church. The spiritual seed of Abraham. Okay? This is the war between Satan, the dragon, and Israel, and we see how it crescendos and plays out in the tribulation. Okay? Starts with Antichrist's deception of the nation. He makes them think he's the Messiah. They'll believe he's the Messiah. Jesus tells us that. Jesus speaks of Antichrist. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they'll believe he's the Messiah. Then he betrays them. And this coincides with the dragon being kicked out of heaven. And then he goes after to destroy them. And that's what John is focusing on here. Okay? Classically, people look at these two chapters as introducing the main characters of the tribulation. Seven great personages. We have the woman, which is Israel. We have the dragon, which is Satan, the old serpent. We have the man-child, which is Messiah, King Jesus. We have the archangel... Michael, which stands for the people of Israel, we have the remnant of the one seed, which are the tribulation saints, the fruit of the ministry of the 144,000 witnesses during the tribulation. Not talking about the church. Antichrist can't come till the church is taken out. Just can't happen. That's very clear in the book of Thessalonians, in the two epistles there. The tribulation saints those that hear the preaching of the Jewish witnesses and respond in faith, a countless number John saw in chapter 7 of Revelation of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not people that have heard the Gospel. Clearly in this dispensation, they'll believe the lie. Antichrist, the lie. Um, and then we have the last two of those seven personages in chapter 13. We have the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. But this is not just a listing of major characters. This is a presentation, a cosmic presentation of the war between Israel and the dragon. Okay? The first four verses of chapter 12, the two main players. John only describes two of these seven personages as great wonders. That means they're the main characters, the dragon and the woman. So this is all revolving around the war between Satan and Israel. And then we look at the cause. We saw the cause of the war. As we get toward uh, the middle of chapter 12, we see that this war has three campaigns. 
There's a campaign that starts in heaven in which Michael and his angels fight the dragon and his angels and the dragon's kicked out. The dragon is that one that shows up at the wedding feast in Jesus' parable. The church is in heaven. That, that wedding feast, that private celebration that the bride and the bridegroom have with close friends. He shows up in there, the accuser of the brethren without a wedding garment. And the, the bridegroom says, how did you get in here? And they cast him out. And when Satan is cast out to earth, it says he's really ticked off. Right now, Satan's primary ministry is in heaven in the sense it was in the book of Job, the accuser of the brethren, accusing them day and night and day and night. Okay, But he's kicked out. And when he's kicked out, he's really angry and goes after the woman, after Israel. Goes after the remnant of her seed. And that's when the war moves into an earthly campaign. When he's kicked out of heaven... He, he pursues the woman into the desert. We talk about how God has a place prepared for Israel to flee the land. Somewhere connected to Edom or Moab in the desert there, east of the Jordan River. He has a place prepared for them to protect them. The dragon pursues her and he fails. The earth helps the woman. Okay, And when he fails, he gets really angry and he goes after the remnant of her seed, which are the tribulation saints. So there's an earthly campaign, a failed pursuit, a ruthless reprisal. And we're introduced to all of these personages. And then we get into chapter 13 and 14, I mean chapter 13, and we're still in this earthly campaign. And so we see this ruthless reprisal in which the dragon gets angry and exercises his anger for having been kicked out of heaven. And then we see the... Um, the campaign in terms of its leaders or its generals, okay? The commander-in-chief of this earthly campaign to stamp out Israel is the beast out of the sea. And its minister of propaganda, we'll see, is the beast out of the earth. You know, we, have, we believe in a triune God, okay? That's why the God of the Quran, the God of rabbinic Judaism, and the God of the Bible cannot be the same. Because the God we worship is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Equally God. One God. Manifest in three persons. The God of the Mohammedans is not God. Because God has a Son. And He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. The rabbinic, rabbinic Judaism says God can't have a Son. Rabbinic Judaism's God is a lot more like the God of the Quran than the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a triune God. But make no mistake, friends, God is a trinity. Man was made in His image. Man is a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. Satan, the great counterfeiter, has his own trinity. Satan, the spirit... The king behind it all. Antichrist. His incarnation. And the false prophet. The one that bears witness of Antichrist and of Satan himself. There's a satanic trinity. Satan, the quote-unquote father of the earth. Antichrist, the son of the earth. Or the vine of the earth, it says in Revelation 14. And the false prophet, the spirit of the earth. Satan's a counterfeiter. And we're being introduced in chapter 13 to these other two members of the satanic trinity. 
Okay, A beast that rises up out of the sea. So that's where we are in the outline. We're in the war's earthly campaign. Of course, when we get to chapter 14, we're going to see its victory campaign. Because the victory belongeth to the Lord. Israel is not erased. Israel is not fully stamped out. Many have tried to do so. And the fact that the Jewish people remain in existence today, others have come and gone, I mean, have come and gone, other peoples and nations, despite so many attempts to eradicate her, going all the way back to Pharaoh in Egypt. The fact that she remains today is a testimony that God does what he says he's going to do. His promises are without repentance. The promises made to Abraham were unconditional. They were not conditioned upon Israel's obedience. Israel's blessing was conditioned upon her obedience. Her disobedience brought judgment. But that doesn't nullify the promises God made to Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Righteousness is to believe God and take Him at His word. And I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. The beast out of the sea is the sixth of the seven main characters we've seen in this parenthesis. As I've said, this is Antichrist. And we've already seen him twice in this book. We've already seen him twice. Possibly even a third time. And I'll speak of that a little bit later. In chapter 6, verse 2, the Lamb opens the seal. And one of the beasts, one of the cherubim around the altar says to John, come and see. And behold, I saw a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Bow and no arrows. He conquers through peace and flatteries, Daniel tells us. And a crown, not a diadem, the crown of victory, the many crowns of victory that Christ has in Revelation 19. He's got the diadems on his head. It's a Stephanos, a crown. Uh, I mean, not the, the diadem, the crown of authority, but the crown of victory is what the white horse rider here has. The Stephanos, it's given to him. Crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That's Antichrist. As he's introduced to the world, he comes bringing peace. He comes offering a solution to the Middle East problem. And he makes a treaty whereby Israel can live and feel at peace and have her temple and worship. Not according to the worship of God in truth, in spirit and truth, but according to man-made tradition from which she must and needs be repent. We've seen him. He's the white horse rider, the imitator. We've seen him in chapter 11, verse 7. God sends those street preachers Moses and Elijah to preach against the Jews there in Jerusalem who are being deceived to give testimony at the temple. And it says in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the enemy can't take you out until you're done with your testimony. And God determines when you're done with your testimony, not the enemy. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And then their bodies lie in the streets for three days and the earth acts like it's Christmas. Because the world hates the street preacher. They hate it when the Word of God is given testimony in the public arena. They hated the prophets. You know, today Israel talks about the prophets and they decorated the tombs of the prophets, but their fathers killed them. What hypocrisy. 
The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's Antichrist. He's the one that kills those two witnesses. Of course, they get up on their feet and are raptured out and then the whole world realizes, uh-oh, uh-oh. There's another subtle reference. Chapter 9, verse 11. The sixth trumpet judgment. Remember we talked about infernal torment and infernal <clears throat> destruction. The fifth trumpet judgment, I'm sorry, the fifth trumpet judgment is that those locusts that come out of the abyss that torment men for five months. And then the demons in the deep, in the abyss. Remember the demons that were cast out of the pigs? They begged Jesus, please don't send us into the deep. That's the, it's the abode of demons. They're led out to torment men. Then we get to the sixth trumpet where the fallen angels that sinned in the days of, uh, of Noah are led out to kill men. But these demons led out of the bottomless pit, they have a king. They have a king. His name is Abaddon or Apollyon, which means destroyer. This, I believe, is Antichrist. Why would he be in the deep where the demons go? We'll find out later. We'll talk more about that later. Why are we going to take time to study Antichrist in depth? What's the purpose? Why do we want to talk about this evil man? You know, if we believe that God's going to take His church out, it doesn't even concern us. Why would we even want to mess with it? There's a very important reason why we should study this man in depth. He's the second most talked about individual in all of Scripture besides Messiah Himself. Messiah is the most referenced individual in all of Scripture. Antichrist is the second most. It's interesting that when Messiah is mentioned the first time in the Scriptures, Antichrist is mentioned as well. So if God saw fit to put it in there, and the Old Testament in particular was given for our edification and our learning, then it would behoove us to study what God sees as important to reveal. But why would we, the church, need to study His character and study His future, study His appearances and references in Scripture? Because there's not just a man. There's not just Antichrist the man. There's Antichrist the Spirit. And the Spirit of Antichrist is in the world today. You know He's coming, but His Spirit, many antichrists are out there today. False teachings. Satan hates the church and wants to deceive her. He hates Israel and wants to destroy her. There is a spirit of antichrist. The and the man whom that spirit across the ages and in many places typifies and foreshadows. Why would we want to study antichrist? Because it'll be better prepare us to detect the spirit of Antichrist that abounds. If we know His character, we can recognize deception when we see those same things mirrored in false teachers and government leaders that promise us things they can't deliver upon. I'll give you an example. Daniel 11 gives us some very minute details concerning how Antichrist will come to power. It says that he will come in peaceably and he'll take the kingdom by flatteries. Peaceable deception and flattery is a mark Antichrist rises to power. So when we see peaceable promises and flatteries from those that would claim to hold the truth, we know that the spirit of Antichrist is manifesting himself. 
And we need to be careful. We see that flattery, that flattery, that wickedness in these politicians that are vying for the presidency. Recognize the spirit of Antichrist when it's here because we've studied the man that will come. Does that make sense? It's important for us to know. Turn to 1 John. I don't like to make these claims without backing it up with Scripture. I'm not going to hold a commentary in my hand and say, this is the opinion of this man's opinion of this dead man. I'm going to cite the Scriptures. Commentaries are great. But Jesus said, search the Scriptures. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Daniel, would you read that for us? John doesn't deny that Antichrist will come. He doesn't deny that. Yes, the man will come. But he said, even now there are many Antichrists, the spirit of Antichrist, whereby you know that it is the last time. What defined these Antichrists? Ones that were once of us and then went out from us. Not somebody that started out here totally pagan and we knew they were false from the beginning. Antichrist is one that starts with us and then he goes out. He's an imitator. And we're going to see the very same thing is true of the man in regard to Israel. He starts out as one of Israel, a friend of Israel, and then he goes out. And the fact that he goes out proves he's not who he said he was. The spirit of Antichrist is rampant in the church. And it started in the church. It started with the appearance of being one of us. I know so many right now that are steeped in false doctrine, steeped in wickedness and lies, steeped in self-delusion that started with us and had all the appearance of spirituality. Maybe some of them are saved. I don't know. I'm not the one that knows that. I just know what the spirit of Antichrist looks like. It starts with us and then it goes out. Be careful. One that starts off as one thing that looks good and then begins to follow into something else, usually people follow them because they're following the man and not the truth. Started out with us, but then he went out because he was an imitator. The spirit of the Antichrist is just like the Antichrist, the man. It's rehearsal. Rehearsal time. Dress rehearsal. Turn to, uh, let's look at chapter 2, verse 22. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Someone that started with us that seemed to have sound doctrine, but then they go down a road in which Jesus being the Christ, that means He's the Messiah of Israel. That means He is the Anointed One of God. That means He is God. That means He is the Son of God. When those things start being compromised ever so slightly, you have the spirit of Antichrist. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And when that's compromised, 
Those compromising it were never of Christ. They're the spirit of Antichrist. What they gave in the beginning, they deceived you with. There's many false cults in America that started out in the church, that started out as seemingly Bible-believing. And then they went out, and now the fruit of their so-called religion today is not God. Guys, Mormon Jesus is not Bible Jesus. Jehovah's Witness Jesus is not Bible Jesus. Catholic Jesus ain't Bible Jesus. Not. Many antichrists, many false Christs. Jesus warned us. Chapter 4 of 1 John, verses 2 and 3. Ricky, will you read that? Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. So we know these Antichrist that John refers to in chapter 2 is the spirit of Antichrist manifested in types or people that are types of the one that would come. The spirit of Antichrist does not confess that Jesus Christ, that means Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, the Messiah, is come in the flesh. Okay? The Jews, rabbinic Judaism denies that the Messiah has come in the flesh. That's the spirit of Antichrist. To, to affirm that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to affirm that He is Messiah, that He's already been here, and that He is God. Those that deny Jesus is fully God, and that He's the promised Messiah of Israel, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Okay? And it's all over the place. And these are the very things that Antichrist himself will do. He'll claim to be the Messiah. So he denies that Jesus was Messiah. And then he claims to be God. So he denies that Christ is God. He is the man Antichrist. But that spirit deceiving us and leading us away from those core truths that differentiate the Bible from all man-made religion. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Be careful. Beware. He is a spirit and a person that shall come. Paul calls him the man of sin. The son of perdition. Not a son of perdition. The son of perdition. He is Satan's superman. And if we study him and how he is revealed in Scripture, we'll be more equipped to recognize his spirit. That's all over the place in this country today. Antichrist is a person. He's not a system. There's a teaching that goes all the way back. Uh, the teaching that Antichrist is a person and not a system, not some kind of representative symbol of some system like the Roman Catholic Popery. The idea that he is a person goes all the way back to the apostolic church. It's very clear in the New Testament that the writers speak of him as a man, the man of sin. Okay? The very first six centuries of the church, there's abundant references in the writings of early church personages that identify him as a man that would come. There's a document called The Teaching of the Apostles that goes back to the beginning of the second century. So this would be not long after 
John the Apostle wrote Revelation and after John the Apostle died. And so obviously these early Christians have been studying what John had to say. Listen to what this document says. It says, For in the last days the false prophets and the destroyers shall be multiplied, and the sheep shall be turned into wolves. And we see that today. And love shall be turned into hate. For when lawlessness increases, they shall hate and persecute and deliver up one another. And then shall appear the world deceiver as the Son of God, who shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall be delivered in His hands. And He shall do lawless deeds such as have never been done since the beginning of the world. Then shall the race of men come into the fire of trial, and many shall be offended and shall perish. But they who have endured in their faith shall be saved under the very curse itself. We know that those, that Jewish remnant, those tribulation saints that endure to the end, who Jesus was speaking to in the Olivet Discourse, will be saved. So He is a man that will come and portray Himself to be the Son of God. Again, that's from the teaching of the apostles, a document that goes back to the generation after the apostles. So even back then they believed it was a man. But sometime around the end of the 12th century, some people say as late as the 14th century, there were persecuted believers. Generation of generation of generation of Bible-believing Christians that had been persecuted by the ecclesiastical monster which had become the Roman Catholic Church. And it was in this time of darkness and persecution that there was a first, our first marked deviation from this teaching where Antichrist began to be seen as a system and not a literal man. There were persecuted believers like the Valdensians and the, and the, the Albigensians and the Paulicans and others. They were deemed heretics. Usually in church history, if the Roman Catholic Church called somebody a heretic, that usually means Bible. So be careful when you read church history. Usually from um, Constantine up until the Reformation, you're just reading Catholic history. Okay? Be careful. Most of those groups called heretics by Rome were, were Bible believers that copied the Scriptures and preserved them, that laid the seeds for the Reformation. they hadn't laid those seeds, the Reformation would never have happened. Um, and, and these persecuted believers under the thumb of the Pope and the system of popery began to think that perhaps Antichrist was the system, not just a man because there were many popes, so one time there was three popes at one time. Some of them would reign for just a couple of years and then they'd be murdered and another guy would come along. So they began to think, maybe this is a system. This notion was then picked up by the reformers and it ultimately, in my opinion, bred what I believe is very wicked and very dangerous Catholic post-millennial replacement theology. It's where it started. It started with a deviation from seeing Antichrist as a literal man that would come and viewing it as a system. Now look... I can give grace to the Waldensians, the Hussites, the Lollards, the, 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 the followers of John Wycliffe and the Reformers. I mean, let's be honest. They lived in dark days that we could never understand. The dark days. True days of tribulation that we can't even comprehend. In the dark ages in medieval Europe, there was no evidence in those days that Israel would be returning to the land. None whatsoever. Israel was scattered. They were persecuted just like the, the Bible believers were by Rome. There were the Crusades where it was Romans and Muslims fighting over the land. Jew, Jews, Jews weren't even the equation. There was no evidence that God was doing anything with Israel. 
The character of the Antichrist was definitely mirrored by the papacy. And the Scriptures in their entirety were largely unavailable to the individual. So let's give them some grace. They thought maybe these things aren't literal. I mean, maybe Israel really is the church and Antichrist is the Pope-Papal system because they didn't have the Scriptures largely available. Even after the printing press, it was mostly printed copies of the Scriptures on the pulpits in the churches. There weren't individual copies of the Bible like we have today. We've been blessed. And so they mistook the Spirit for the man. And when, you mis- when they mistook the Spirit for the man, they begin to think, well, maybe this is all allegorical. While maintaining that everything related to Christ's first coming was literal. Reformed theology has never denied that everything related to Christ's first coming was literally fulfilled. But when it comes to His second coming, Reformed theology wants to say it's all an allegory. The church has replaced Israel. Antichrist is a system. Some even say that all this stuff in Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70. It's all been fulfilled in the past. That's nonsense. And it stems from Roman Catholic eschatology that was kept by the Reformers. The Reformers held on to some traits of their Catholic mother. I mean, they were steeped in it. Give them some grace. Reformation, the Sardis church period, produced a dead thing. God used it, used it in a mighty way. But ultimately, what began became dead in a lot of ways. Look at Protestantism today. But I'm not talking about them. I can have some grace for them. But we are not living back then. We're living on this side of what? What happened in 1948? A miracle of history. A literal fulfillment of Isaiah. A nation born in a day. We live on the other side of Israel's literal regathering into the land. We have no excuse to err in this fashion when it comes to end times prophecy related to Jesus, related to Antichrist. We have no reason not to believe it's literal. If it's symbolic, the Scriptures tells us it is. And it defines, or we can compare Scripture with Scripture and completely tell. The church has not replaced Israel. God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. There's a day coming when all those living at that time on the earth, at that particular moment, will call for Messiah and be saved. Antichrist is a literal man. Daniel's 70th week is a literal time period. We've talked about all that. Jesus Christ's throne in Jerusalem is literal. His kingdom here on earth is literal. He will come physically and bodily and set up a kingdom. The church is not living in that millennium right now. There are people that teach we're living in the millennium right now and Satan's bound. I, I think you could be on drugs and come up with better sense than that. That's unbelievably ridiculous. Ignorance. There's some ignorance in this world you can't teach and you can't cure it. Sorry. There's just two types of ignorance. One of them you can't teach. It's so ignorant. And one of them is so ignorant you can't cure it. What can you do? We don't want to have that type of ignorance. There is other ignorance that's teachable and we can learn from. May that be the type of ignorance we have. It's kind of interesting. Usually when a dispensationalist preaches or makes his points, he does so with a Bible in his hand. And he exegetes. Can anybody accuse me of not exegeting these Scriptures? Have we stepped out of Revelation and compared Scripture with Scripture? 
In fact, to this day, we've, this study has gotten us into every single book of the Bible except Song of Solomon, and I promise you we'll go there. And I know exactly where the Scriptures will take us there. Dispensational theology uses the Bible, and it exegetes. Reformed eschatology or replacement theology usually holds a commentary in its hand, recites the opinions of dead men or the opinions about opinions of dead men, and instead of exegeting, they regurgitate. Be careful. Praise God for the reformers. There's some elements of reformed theology that talk about the character of God that are very sound and biblical and we should hold to them and rest in them, rest in the sovereignty of God, rest in the truths of salvation, rest in a salvation that cannot be lost. Those aspects are great, praise God. But reformed eschatology is dangerous. Be careful. Antichrist is a man, not a system. Yes, the Roman Catholic papal system is the spirit of Antichrist. They mirror him in his character. But we're going to see in Revelation chapter 17 that Rome is not the Antichrist. It's the great horror that Antichrist uses in some fashion to get to power just like he uses Israel and then he betrays her. And she's destroyed by the very kings that she rides upon. We'll talk about that later. Antichrist is a person. The church is not the nation of Israel. You know, when you build a theology upon a commentary and upon the opinion of the opinion of the opinion of this guy, and you deliver your theology by regurgitating, you know who you're just like? You're just like the rabbis. You're just like rabbinic Judaism. You're just like the people in Jesus' day. When you talk to religious Israelis, they don't ever appeal to the Scripture. It's always, well, the rabbi says this, or the rabbi says that. The reason why Jesus was evil is because He spoke against the rabbis. Sometimes we peddle these theologies and we don't realize who we're like. Praise God for commentaries and tools we can read. I used some material to study for this message that was very helpful. But the Bible is what we need to search. If what we believe is what we're regurgitating and not what we've studied, then we need to get back into the Scriptures. Antichrist is a person. The church is not the nation of Israel. He is the second most talked about character in all of Scripture, second only to the Messiah Himself. As with the Messiah, there are specific details that were given to Israel so they could recognize Antichrist when He came. But they won't. They won't. They're too busy listening to the rabbis instead of searching the Scriptures. Reformed theology gets off base because it's too busy reading the commentaries of men that lived in a completely different time that I can understand why they erred in matters of eschatology. They're too busy reading that stuff instead of searching the Scriptures. For us, specific details given about Antichrist are mirrored in His Spirit. We should recognize the spirit of Antichrist, but we don't. We're often deceived and led away. We're just like Israel in a lot of ways. God gives us the information. It's right here, but we're not looking for it. Israel should have recognized Jesus when they came. Daniel prophesied precisely to the year, to the day 
when Messiah would come and when He would be cut off. And they missed Him. There were some that knew the time was drawing nigh. They were in the temple waiting. Simeon, he knew. Israel missed Him. Israel ought to know exactly who Antichrist is based on what Daniel prophesies. But they'll miss Him because they're not studying the Scriptures. Many who claim to be Christian today that claim to love Jesus will bow down on their faces to the man of sin because they won't know the truth. They've missed it. In Isaiah, this is an interesting way to remember the difference between the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Daniel. The main character revealed prophetically in the book of Isaiah is Jesus, Messiah. Details of Messiah. And then some details of Antichrist as relates to Messiah. And then when you get to Daniel, it's flipped. Daniel's main character in terms of prophecy is Antichrist. With some details of Messiah given as relates to Antichrist. So Israel has all it needs to know to recognize these people. We can't come down too hard on them because we're the same way. We're the same way. I want to remind you there was a message I preached back on... This is all introduction, by the way. There's a message I preached back on March the 2nd, 2014, more than two years ago. And at that day, we were in Revelation 6. Revelation 6, verse 2. It's called the White Horse Rider. You can find it online on our podcast or you can go to the FPGM uh, iTunes podcast. And I encourage you to just go back and listen to that and it'll kind of remind you. We talked a lot of Antichrist back then. I talked about how Isaiah gives us a foreview of Antichrist and Daniel gives us a foreview. We talked about some of those scriptures. Those four views, Isaiah and Daniel, are as he relates to apostate Israel. And then we talked about Paul's four view in 2 Thessalonians. And we talked about John's four view in Revelation, even touching on these scriptures a bit. Those four views primarily discuss Antichrist's relationship with the Gentiles. Okay? Progressive revelation, lots of details in these main passages in Isaiah, Daniel, Paul's writings in John. We talked about this, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but as I teach my martial arts students, repetition is key to instinct. Okay? Repetition is key to learning. So it's been two years, so maybe we should repeat some of this, but I want to focus on a few elements of Antichrist that I didn't touch on last time. So if you want to go back for review, go back to that message, and then I want to give you something that will help you out. Um, this is from one of Clarence Larkin's works on the commentary of Revelation, but what he's got here is the main passages concerning Antichrist. Daniel's foreview, Paul's, and John's. Okay, I'll get into a little bit from Isaiah, and then he kind of has a little drawing here of what's depicted. And these are the four main uh, uh, views or four views of Antichrist. And we talked about these last time, but you guys can pass these out. They'll be a helpful study tool just to, so you can know where to search the Scriptures. And then let me just introduce a book to you. This is a very interesting read uh, uh, by um, a, uh, a pastor who was born in England. And it was written in the 80s. He had held pastorates in the United States and in Australia, Arthur Pink, and it's called The Antichrist. This is one of the best books I've ever read on the specific subject. A lot of authors touch upon it. 
This is a great read. It's very simple to read. Lots of scriptures, lots of things we don't often see in scripture as relating. So Arthur Pink's The Antichrist, great book. A friend of mine gave me this one. Uh, I was in seminary. His name's still in the front. And it's a really helpful work that you might find an enjoyable read. So just some things to keep in mind uh, by way of introduction. So I want to emphasize a few things here that we didn't talk about last time. And then we're going to actually get into the text, okay? So consider all this as basically an exegesis or an introduction to what we're told here in verse 1 about this beast of the sea. So I'm giving you a character sketch comparing Scripture with Scripture, and then when we go into the text itself, it'll make a lot of sense. So there's some things I want to talk about I didn't talk about last time. I want to talk about Antichrist's first appearance in the Scriptures. Then I want to talk about the fact that He, like Messiah, has many names. Many names in the Scripture. So you'll know where to find Him and what His Spirit looks like and can be better equipped to detect false doctrine and false teachers. There are many allusions to Antichrist in the Psalms. Okay? Just like there are allusions to Messiah in the Psalms. It's in the Psalms we learn that he'll be crucified. Not a Jewish execution, but a Roman execution. Antichrist will be a Jew. We're going to talk about that. Antichrist has been here before. He's already been on the earth, just like Messiah has. He's been here once. And then finally, what must happen in God's prophetic timetable before Antichrist is revealed? I want to visit that. Because that relates directly to us. So those are some things I want to touch on. You know, so we may not get very far into chapter 13, but Revelation is packed full of truth that is talked about elsewhere in Scripture. And I'm here not to preach things for you to regurgitate, but to give you tools where you can search the Scriptures. I encourage you to search the Scriptures to see whether the things I'm teaching are right. I'm not claiming to be right, but I believe the Scriptures are right, and I believe they're written that we can plainly understand them. So those are some things I didn't really touch on so much last time. Go back and listen to that other message uh, for for the sake of review, and then we'll look at some other aspects. Uh, As He is one of the main characters in all of Scripture, we need to give Him some time, because it better equips us to know His Spirit and to recognize false teaching. Um, first thing I want to emphasize, the beast out of the sea appears here in Revelation 13. In Revelation 12, we have the dragon. Now, we know by the time we get to Revelation 12 that this is Satan. And we know by the time we get there that the serpent in the garden was the devil. But the Bible never specifically states that the serpent was the devil until we get to Revelation 12. It says in chapter 12, the great dragon was cast out, verse 9, that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceives the whole world. So an allusion is made back to Genesis. Serpent is introduced in Genesis. He's specifically named as Satan and the dragon. We did all throughout Scripture, but this specifically says, there's no assumption here, that he's the serpent. In the next chapter, chapter 13 of Revelation, we're told about the beast of the earth, the beast that comes out of the sea. 
Just as Satan, the serpent, was first introduced back in Genesis, Antichrist is introduced back in Genesis. So it's interesting how what starts in the garden comes full circle here in Revelation. It alludes all the way back to the beginning. Antichrist is prophesied or appears first at the same time Christ first appears in the Scriptures. Where is the first reference to Messiah in the Scriptures? Anybody know? Genesis 3, you know what verse? 3.15. We call that sometimes in Latin, it was called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. When God was pronouncing His judgment upon the serpent, we know He clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skins. There was a blood sacrifice to cover their sin. And God told the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Who is her seed? Christ. Where does the seed normally come from? The man. It's the virgin birth. The woman would have a seed conceived by the Holy Ghost and God would put enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Between thy seed, that is the serpent's seed, and the seed of the woman. It, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head or crush That word bruise had a lot stronger meaning back in the King James days than it does today, but it means crush. It shall bruise or crush thy head. Thou, the serpent, shall bruise or strike at his heel. So the image there is of an adder or a serpent striking at the heel of a passerby, and then what does the passerby do? Crushes his head. Okay, But we have reference here to the serpent and the seed of the woman. But we also have mention of the serpent's seed. The woman has a seed. This is an allusion to the virgin birth. Satan, the serpent himself, also has a seed. Who is that seed? The Antichrist, the false Messiah. The serpent is explicitly identified in Revelation 12.9. And a description of his seed, Revelation 13, immediately follows. The serpent, thou, would strike at the seed of the woman's heel. Who is the heel of the seed of the woman? Who's the heel of the Messiah? I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I think it's very interesting that when you study the Old Testament, Israel is often associated with the Lord's foot, His heel. Let's look at a couple passages. I'm not going to go too long. Give me a few more minutes. Exodus. Let me get through at least this first point. Exodus 24, 9-11. I think it's very interesting here. Exodus 24, 9-11. This is when uh, God had delivered or was delivering the law, Mount Sinai. It says, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And look what it says here. And they saw the God of Israel. They saw God. And there was under His feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in His clearness. Now the Bible says in John, no man hath seen God at any time. What we know that means is no man hath seen God in His fullness. 
Okay? If I'm walking into a bathroom and I know Ricky's in there, um, his feet under the stall, I've seen Ricky, right? Now, I saw his feet under the stall. I didn't see his whole body. But I still saw him, right? Okay? So, there's no contradiction here. Israel saw God. They, these elders saw His feet. They didn't see Him in His full glory. No man has seen Him like that. But the, the Son, the only begotten Son, He's revealed Him, says in John. But they saw God's feet, and under His feet was like a sapphire stone. And it said in verse 11, Upon the nobles of the children of Israel He laid not His hand, and they saw God and did eat and drink. So these elders of Israel saw his feet and right there at his feet, right there at his heels on that sapphire stone, they ate and drank. They ate and drank in his presence. That's kind of an interesting little happening that associates the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron with the feet or heels of God. Look at Ezekiel 43.7. This is talking about the future millennial kingdom and the temple of Messiah there in Jerusalem literally going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. I had a friend of mine say to me once, you know, this doctrine of the millennium you know, that you have, this premillennial theology, I mean, you base all of that on one verse of Scripture. Revelation 20, it says that there would be a kingdom for a thousand years. How can you build a theology on one verse of Scripture? I said, well, friend, how many times does the Bible have to say something for it to be true. But you do err not knowing the Scriptures. The millennium is talked about all over the Old Testament. All Revelation 20 d does is give us a, puts a time period on it. You do err not knowing the Scriptures. Ezekiel 43.7 And He said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. Neither they nor the kings by their whoredom, nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. This is God speaking. And He's speaking that in Jerusalem, at the soles of His feet, Israel will dwell forever. Messiah. Look at Lamentations chapter 2.1. I think we've been in Lamentations before. I'm sure of it. But just to make sure, we're going to go back there again so we can say we hit all books of the Bible. Look at what Jeremiah weeps and says in chapter 2 verse 1. How has the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel and remembered not His footstool in the day of His anger. Who's the footstool of God? Israel. Called His footstool. What rests on a footstool? Your heel. I don't put my foot on a footstool like this. It's like this. Israel's a footstool. Now, turn to Psalm 110. I'm going to show you something you, we've probably never even stopped to consider. Now remember, um, Scriptures can have broad applications. All Scriptures have broad applications or they wouldn't be given to us. But there are specific contexts that speak to specific things that we should not ignore. Psalm 110, famous 
messianic psalm of David. The apostles preached this in Acts chapter 2. David was talking about himself. How does he call Messiah Lord if he's not Lord? If he's not God? The Lord said unto my Lord. In other words, Jehovah said unto my Adonai. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, we could stop there and we could think of the enemies being the heathen nations and all that. There's truth there, but we need to keep reading. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Messiah, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. What people is not willing today? Israel. In the day of His power, thy people. Who is thy people? His enemies. The enemies that Christ will make His footstool are the people of Israel. That's the primary context there. They are His footstool. Lamentations 2. They are His enemies. And until they become His footstool again, He sits at the right hand of God. That's the primary context there. Obviously, Christ is going to make all the heathen nations His footstool. Obviously. But we can't ignore the original context there. What does it say in Hosea chapter 5? We've talked about This is such an important passage I like to use when witnessing to Jewish people. God says in chapter 5 verse 15, I will, re- I will go. In other words, I will go to the earth and return to my place. I'll go back to where I came from. Messiah would go and then He'd come back. He came to earth, He went back. Until when? Until they, the people of Israel, that's who this book is written to, acknowledge their offense and seek my face. What's the offense of the nation of Israel? They rejected their Messiah. Messiah said He would go and to back to His place until they acknowledged their offense and then He would deliver them when they sought His face. The day when Christ's enemies become His footstool is when Israel recognizes their offense and calls for Him. That's the primary context. And when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, it's very interesting that he quotes this passage. Uh, I, um, let's see. Yeah, he's preaching at Pentecost. And um, he talks about David uh, and how God has raised up Jesus and... Um, David did not ascend to the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So he's quoting this Psalm 10. Then what does he say? Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter, in preaching that passage, is not teaching it to the Jewish people any different than Psalms is. His enemy, and Messiah is going to sit at the foot, the right hand of God, until his enemies, the house of Israel, recognizes their offense and becomes that footstool. Let the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jeremiah 13, we have an interesting uh, 
parable. I wouldn't say parable, but it's an interesting thing that God tells the prophet to do. He tells him to go get a linen girdle, like a pair of linen underwear, and to put them on. Don't wash them brand new, brand space. It's like a new pair of underwear you've never washed. I love the feeling of that. Okay, I've got some strange, obsessive, compulsive behaviors in my life. One of them is knowing that I have one or two pairs of underwear in my drawer that have never been worn just gives me a sense of security. And so when I travel, I pack underwear. I always keep a pair that I've never been worn in. It's very rare that I'll actually wear it. But just knowing I've got that with me in case I need it makes me feel secure. Now some say that was genetics inherited uh, by dad. I'm not sure about that. But think of that, what, that new underwear is like putting on a new pair of socks. It's just, there's something to it. Okay? God told Jeremiah basically to do that. A pair of linen underwear and let them, and wear them. Okay? And then, he told Jeremiah to take it off, go over to the river Euphrates, dig a hole in the rock, and stick that underwear in there and bury it. Leave it there. And then it said after some time, Jeremiah was told to come back and get the underwear out, and when it was there, it was marred, and it was basically profitable for nothing. It was destroyed. Okay? I actually one time lived this out. Um, I was in Joshua Tree National Park in Southern California. No bathrooms out there. Okay? Um, I was well off the road, and I discovered I had no toilet paper. So, I had a pretty brand new pair of underwear on. And I had to use it in place of toilet paper. Okay? I left it there. About a month later, I was back in that same place, and I was just kind of curious to see if that pair of underwear was still there and what had happened to it. And it was marred and good for nothing after it had been left there. So it was a, <laughs> I can understand what's happening here. But this was, to, this was told to Jeremiah as a picture of Israel. Israel was God's anointed. The nation that God raised up to declare His character to the world. They were to declare God to the world. They never did. They kept it to themselves. That's why God raised up the church. But Israel clung to the loins of God. They were like that new underwear, clung to the loins of God. But they forsook Him. And instead of being new underwear unwashed on the loins of God, they were like the marred underwear stuck in the rock given to the elements. Good and profitable for nothing. That's what they had become. And that's what the prophet was preaching to the people. But when you get down in this prophecy in verse 22, God's saying, you know, when you start asking why has these things happened to you, if thou say in thine heart, wherefore come these great things upon me, for the greatness of thy iniquity are thy skirts discovered. Because of your sin, your skirts are discovered. And what? Thy heels are made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also... Is it possible for you to do good that are actually accustomed to do evil? I think of Nathaniel's question when his brother told him he'd found the Messiah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is that actually possible? Yes, if God's behind it. But... Because of their sin, 
God tells Israel, your heels have been made bare. They've been made bare for the strike. And of course, we see that in the immediate context of the serpent's identification. He is cast out of heaven in Revelation 12 and he goes after Israel. The strike of the serpent. The serpent via the Antichrist is the strike at the heel of the seed of the woman. The heel is Israel. But Messiah crushes the serpent's head and by default, also his seed whom he destroys, not in a great battle like the Jedi and the, and the Sith Lords and Star Wars where they fight for 20 minutes with lightsabers before one of them wins. No, the seed of, of, the, of the serpent is destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. There isn't even a punch thrown. It's the ultimate sin, sin, no sin, or whatever. Some uh, inside joke where martial arts is concerned, but it's the ultimate. Christ doesn't even have to throw a punch. He's destroyed with the brightness of His coming. So I think it's very interesting that we do see Antichrist in Genesis 3. We have the virgin birth foreshadowed. We have the strike at the heel of the seed which Israel is associated with God's feet and His heel many times throughout Scripture. So we have all of these things that are being given in more detailed couched in the book of Genesis. That proves that the Bible is one whole. It goes together. It's, not, it's really not one book. It's a library of books. 66 books. Okay, But it's progressive revelation that agrees with itself. It's not like the Quran and the early surahs. It speaks favorably of of the people of the book. or the, It's funny that the Mohammedans in the early days called the Christians the people of the book. Man, that's a great thing to be called. I wish we were called that today, but we're not. We're not people of the book anymore. But in the early surahs, the people of the book and the Jews are spoken of somewhat favorably, but then when you get later on, they're talked about as infidels. Muhammad uh, contradicts himself so many times, I, could, I can't even stand to read it. it just, it's like this is the, the stupidest thing I've ever read. And people think it came down from God. I think it's the product of a drug overdose or demon possession myself. And when you read about what is said happened to Muhammad before he recited the Quran, it's very clear what that is because we see it in the Gospels. Uh, when people start foaming at the mouth and things like that, we know what's behind it. Not an angel of God, but a demon of the devil. But we see all these things foreshadowed in the book of Genesis and then they're fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Uh, when we introduced the book to you years ago when I started this study, so much that is seated in Genesis comes full circle in Revelation. It, in God's providential sovereignty, it all came together. And we have a blessing that people in the Middle Ages didn't have. Persecuted believers, the Reformers, they didn't have a copy. And to whom much is given, much is required. we got all this technology today. I can... Think about where a scripture is and I remember what it says and I'm trying to find it. I just type in a few words on my Bible program or on my phone and then it tells me to reference. Imagine back in the day when you couldn't do that. You had to think, man, I know I read that somewhere. Where is it? Let me go hike up to the church at night. I'm going to go up to the Bible chain to the pulpit. Man, where is that? What did it say? I mean, can you imagine? We've got so many tools and graces, but we've lightly esteemed it. That's why it behooves us to be what the Mohammedans called our spiritual forefathers, people of the book. And we see the book is not just a book, it's the Word of God. It all goes together. Next time, I'll stop for today. 
Um, I want to talk about the names of Antichrist. There's many, many, many names. Okay? I want to encourage you to read a few Psalms. Okay? And I want you to think about who Antichrist is. Read these Psalms and see if you can find him. Okay? Psalm 5 and Psalm 10 give some pretty detailed sketches of the wicked one. The wicked one. The bloody and deceitful man. The man of the earth. Another good one to read is Psalm 52, Psalm 55, Psalm 74, Psalm 140. These are some interesting psalms that you can see. Now remember, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Actual churches in John's day. Actual churches. They represent types of churches that existed all throughout the church age, but they also have a prophetic character. They give us a prophetic picture of the church age. It's the same with the psalms. These were actual experiences of actual people at an actual point in time. They're types of experiences and trials and tribulation that followers of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob experience in all days and time. But they also have a prophetic picture of, th of future events. Now how do we know that? We know that because the Holy Spirit revealed that to the apostles and they see Jesus in the Psalms. We see Antichrist in the Psalms in the same way. And so by seeing what defines Him, we can be better equipped to see His Spirit working even today so that we're not deceived. I'll leave you with this today. 1 John tells us to beware of the spirit of Antichrist. To beware. Um, let's see here. Uh, tells us, uh, 1 John chapter 4, how we know the spirit of Antichrist. Many false teachers have come. He's already in the world. But... 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them. Who is them? The spirits of Antichrist. Because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. We praise God for that. There are some terrible things coming. Praise God that the church has not been appointed to wrath, but if we study and our understanding of the times, like the children of Issachar were in the old... Testament, we'll know what we ought to do in the time we're living now. We know what we ought to watch for, to be sober, to be vigilant. And these are the things that we're commanded to do. Anybody have any questions? I probably won't be with you next Sunday, I'm not sure, so I've given you some psalms to read, um, some study material that might help you, and then assuredly the Sunday after next will continue, and we'll just see how far this goes. All right? That message is up online. You can find it. Just go all the way back to March of 2014, The White Horse Rider, if you want to listen to that as well. Okay?